And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit unto the wilderness, And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven Heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, which is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Sort of famously, the opening words of Charles Dickens' tale of two cities begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. Now, Dickens wrote his famous novel, placing the characters of that novel in the cities of Paris and London. 
But it's been well said that the closing chapters of Revelation can similarly be called a tale of two cities in which there is a season of darkness and a season of light. And in this tale of two cities, we also see two women described. In Revelation 17 and 18, the first woman, verse 1, calls her the great harlot associated with the city of Babylon. Later, we'll see in chapters 21 and 22, there is a second woman described as the pure bride of Christ, and she is associated with the city, the new Jerusalem. And so there's a great deal of symbolism here, of course, but these two women and these two cities are differentiated by the nature of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses seven, in chapter 17 and 18, it outlines the destruction of the city of Babylon. Although chapters 17 and 18 don't quite tell the same story, or at least those two chapters are telling two different aspects of the same story. In Revelation 17, it's outlining the destruction of the religious aspects of the city of Babylon. In chapter 18, it outlines the destruction of the political and economic aspects of the city of Babylon. It's very common, right or wrong, that we associate often religious systems with political systems. So, for example, many could argue that the United States is a Christian nation, although I would say they're wrong. If it ever was, it's certainly not now. But, you know, we could also identify Israel with Jewishness or Iran with Muslims or India with, as, as Hindu. It's common for us in our minds to mix sort of the political and religious systems together. Similarly, religious Babylon in Revelation 17 and political Babylon in Revelation 18 are essentially two sides of the same coin. As this Babylon faces the, the wrath of God, his wrath on its religious aspects are described in chapter 17. And God's wrath on the political aspects of Babylon is something we'll see when we get to chapter 18. One way we could sort of identify that there is a difference in these two aspects of the city between religious and political is it's described here as this woman who is known to be a great whore, it says, or a great harlot, a great prostitute in verse 1. She's encouraging fornication and sexual immorality in verse 2. She's the mother of harlots and prostitutes in verse 5, calling the world to abominable practices. All of those are allusions to spiritual adultery, worship that claims to have a relationship with the one true God of Scripture, but in practice embraces all kinds of idolatry. And so what John sees in Revelation 17, shown to him, he says in verse 1, by one of the angels with those seven vials of God's wrath, it is the very picture of false religious systems that are used to promote and sort of advance the cause of a political system. Like many times in history, we see these things go together, right? Some world leader seeks to promote themselves and gain support using a religious system as its basis. But any religious system that does not unite individuals with Yahweh, their creator, 
is in fact an act of spiritual adultery. It is uniting humanity with some false god to whom you do not belong. And so Revelation 17 pictures this religious system that is so vile that it's best described as a great prostitute, a great harlot, drawing the inhabitants of the earth into this act of fornication with her. That's the theme of this chapter. We see it set out from the very first verse, right? One of those seven angels with the seven vials of wrath comes and tells John and essentially tells us, here's what this chapter is all about. Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot that sits upon many waters. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm going to be honest enough to tell you I am not super comfortable with expounding the contents of Revelation 17 and 18 without making some occasional disclaimers. I call that one my disclaimer disclaimer. Seriously, I I am cautious when I dig into something like this and study it and end up convinced that I was always right. What I've determined through the course of this study is that many good and faithful students of Scripture have seen these chapters differently. I still see it a very specific way, and I'm going to try to make those connections so that you can see why I see it the way I do. But I'm also going to admit the possibility, actually the certainty, that I don't know everything. And finally, I'll try to show you that even if I'm wrong about some specific details, the main lesson of this text is undoubtedly clear. It is that every false religious system is doomed for destruction because you either find peace with God through obedience to Christ Jesus or you have no peace with God at all. So we're going to look at this chapter in three sections. In verses 1 through 6, We'll see religious Babylon described, right? John sees a vision. He's given this vision of this great harlot. In verses 7 through 15, we'll see religious Babylon detailed, right? As the angel offers John some clarification about what it is that he just saw. And then in verses 16 through 18, we'll see religious Babylon destroyed, right? The fulfillment of the vision that was promised in verse 1. So, religious Babylon described, verses 1 through 6. Let's read them again. There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. To start sort of getting our minds around this text, I want to start with the basic question. Why, why Babylon? I mean, what John sees here in Revelation, it connects back with Old Testament Scripture. There is a significant amount of history in Scripture with this place. That history begins before there is a city of Babylon. Back in Genesis, after the flood, God commands the descendants of Noah to uh, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill, spread out through the earth. And instead of being obedient to God, they took up residence in this plain between the rivers Euphrates and Tigris and said, essentially, instead of glorifying God and obedience, let's make a name for ourselves by building a tower here. That tower, soon called Babel, is the origin of Babylon. God's answer to their wicked rejection of his command was to confound the languages there, right? He forcefully spread them out throughout all the earth. And then later, God spoke to a man who was still living in that plain and said, I'm going to make a name and glorify myself by making you into a great nation. And soon, the nation of Israel was created from the descendants of Abraham. And it was for God's glory. And yet, the prophets said the nation committed spiritual adultery, right? Against God. They started worshiping false idols. In fact, that nation eventually ended up in captivity to Babylon. Right? Well, while there, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision of the temple back at Jerusalem. And what he sees are, are uh, men and women who are worshiping the false idols of Babylon at the temple that's dedicated to Yahweh. So ultimately, the Lord rescues his people from being strangers and foreigners and exiles in Babylon. And so after using Babylon as a tool for his wrath, Babylon became the object of God's wrath. The Bible repeatedly points to Babylon over the course of its history, standing as a kind of picture of false religion. It's a place where God's people lived as strangers, right? They were in it, but they were not to be part of it. They were there, but to be separate. And all those aspects, as well as a couple of others, or why this city, right, this religious system is associated with Babylon. In John's vision in verses 1 through 6, he actually gives eight distinguishing descriptions of religious Babylon. Right, in the section, the next section, the angel gives him some clarification of the vision, but let's start by seeing what John saw. He gives eight distinguishing descriptions of religious Babylon. First, she is known as Mystery Babylon, verse 5. I'm taking this a little out of order because I think it's going to help as a starting place. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The word mystery here isn't talking about you know, a murder mystery or some strange unsolved event. It's a word that's generally is taken and understood as something that was unclear 
but that God has made or God will make clear. And so this label on her forehead starts Mystery Babylon. And that, that would make it seem to us this, this, is, this isn't actually the city of Babylon at all. By the end of the first century, when John is given this vision, when he's writing about this destruction of Babylon, the city of Babylon is a, is, is a non-factor on the world scene. And so using Babylon here doesn't seem to be telling us that this is talking about the literal river, the, the literal city on the Euphrates River. It's used symbolically as a picture of those false religious systems. And so we'll see in a moment some clues that this is actually an entirely different place. Second, she's described in verse 1 as a great whore or a great harlot. I want you to make a note with me here. If, if, if not a note actually in your Bibles, at least a note in your mind. Right? There are several times in this chapter that John uses forms of the exact same word, but it gets translated for us in different ways. So if you want to circle a few, in verse 1, you'll see the word whore, right? Verse 1 and verse 15 and verse 16. And then the word harlot in verse 5. And the word fornication twice in verse 2 and once more in verse 4. Okay? All of those are some form of of the exact same Greek word, porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. But it it simply means sexual immorality. Now, I'm not at all suggesting it's been mistranslated here. I don't want you to misunderstand. It's right to use the word whore, harlot, or prostitute for this woman who is committing sexual immorality and seducing others to commit it with her. I just want you to know that in the original language, this one word gets repeated. It is so prominent, it's like it reaches up from the page and slaps you in the face. In verse 1, she's not just a prostitute or a harlot. She is the great harlot, right? Sexual immorality like no other. Again, the symbolism in this chapter, it doesn't rule out the possibility that there's literally literal sexual immorality being uh, conducted. But the idea, I think, is spiritual adultery. There is this religious system that says it is committed in a relationship to the Lord God, but in reality it is cheating with false gods and seducing others with her. Third, she is a universal religious system. You'll note the end of verse 1 says this great harlot sits upon many waters, which would be strange because as we read this whole chapter in verse 3, she's sitting on an animal of some kind, right? So right away we would suspect that this phrase, sits on many waters, is a way of describing a religious system that is found in many places throughout the world. And by the time we get to the angel's explanation down in verse 15, we'll find out that's exactly what this means. You know, after all, a religious system doesn't literally sit anywhere. But this woman is described in 
Verse 1 is sitting on many waters. And verse 3 is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. And verse 9 is sitting on seven mountains. And in verse 15, the angel explains, the, the waters that you saw where the horse sits are people and multitudes and nations and languages. In short, this is a religious system that has universal influence. Fourth, she has misled multitudes. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Verse 2 tells us this great harlot has influence on two levels, both international and individual. Right, The kings of the earth have engaged in sexual immorality in this religious system. That's the international aspect of her influence. Meanwhile, the individual aspect is clear in the inhabitants of the earth being intoxicated by her sexual immorality. So this international and individual influence suggests there's like this unhealthy union between religion and politics, right? You can picture this state-sponsored religious system and people revel in it. Fifth, she's affiliated with Antichrist system. Now note in the text, verses 1 and 2 are the angel's description of what John is about to see. Verse 3 actually begins the vision, right? John is carried away in the spirit. And he, that is, he's given a vision in verse 3. And at the end of the verse, here's the vision. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of the names of blasphemy and having seven heads and ten horns. Now, I would remind you, earlier in Revelation, we've already seen this creature. John's already received a vision of this exact same description. Back in chapter 13, look at Revelation 13, verse 1. He says, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Right? This is the, this is the same description that John is seeing in verse 3. I don't think you need me to go back and re-preach Revelation 13 for you to remember that seven-headed, ten-horned creature with blasphemy, is the coming Antichrist. It's, it's tempting to say the image of this woman riding on the Antichrist, kind of like a horse, you know, we, we could start making all kinds of assumptions. She's supported by it. She's carried by him. Or even that she's guiding and directing him. <coughs> I think that might be reading a little too much symbolism into it. But I do think we can confidently say there is some sort of affiliation, association with Antichrist's kingdom. They are not in opposition to one another, at least not at the start. That's going to change as the world begins to worship the Antichrist and his anger toward this great harlot is revealed in a moment. But she is associated, affiliated with Antichrist's System. Sixth, she is fantastically wealthy in verse 4. 
She was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. This woman, as John sees her in this vision, is wearing scarlet and purple clothes, covered with gems and and precious metals. The the vision is seductive and splendid. The colors of purple and scarlet are the colors of royalty, nobility, of wealth. She's, She's rich. Earlier I said the word for harlot is actually a word meaning sexual immorality, but the context suggests that description is exactly right because this religious system has gotten rich as a product of of its sexual immorality. She's made it her work to engage in this and has gotten rich in the process. She's fantastically wealthy. Seventh, she's carrying a cup of vile impurities at the end of verse 4. She has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Interestingly enough, the appearance of this gold chalice in her hand belies what it is that she's drinking and what she's made the world to drink. Remember up in chapter 2, the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated as a result of her drawing them into sexual immorality. Right, So this gold cup, John describes, she has a gold cup in her hand. The cup is precious, but the contents are putrid. Right, John says it is full of abominable things and filth. <clears throat> this is another echo from the Old Testament prophets. The prophet Jeremiah wrote of Babylon in Jeremiah 51.7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Deranged humanity is in a drunken stupor thanks to the intoxicating effects of this woman's immoral guidance. And God is going to judge her just like Babylon in the Old Testament, right? He used Babylon as a tool for his wrath, and then Babylon became the object of his wrath. The same is going to happen here. Eighth, she has gotten drunk on the blood of saints. In verse six, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This woman's drunkenness, it's not attributed to alcohol or even the sexual immorality that the people are drunken with. She has been drinking the blood of saints and martyrs. And I don't think that's describing two separate groups. It's the same group. But this woman who has proclaimed to worship God actually strays in that relationship toward false gods. And in the process, the true saints of God who remain faithful are hated by her. She is a persecutor of the Lord's people and the cause for for many martyrs, her murderous methods aren't accidental. This picture is like this determination, this dedication to stamp out the true believers of Christ. And so, who is she? Well, I don't think John knows. The end of verse 6, he describes himself as just standing there in jaw-dropped amazement, right? The word admiration 
isn't really the word we would use now. We basically only use that positively now. But the word John used simply means amazement, astonishment, to marvel or to wonder. You'll see that in a moment when the angel asks, well, why did you marvel? Like, why is this shocking to you? In fact, we'll, we'll get to where I try to answer who this is. But let's look at the angel's explanation of John's vision. Verses 7 through 15, we'll see religious Babylon defined. The angel in verse 7 through 15 offers some clarity on what John saw. All right, in verse 7, The angel asked John, why did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. And that's what the angel does. Although, as far as clarifications go, this one comes off as a bit of a puzzle. So let's read it and then I'll try very briefly to explain it. Start at verse 8. The beast which you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast and they shall make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the horse sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues or languages. Now, I'm not going to try to dwell too long on this section because it, it is outlining something that we already learned earlier in Revelation. And if we recognize and remember that, it's really going to help this make sense. John's vision, as John sees this vision, he is concentrated in his mind on the, the woman in the vision, right? The great harlot. Not so much the beast that she was riding. But the angel's explanation seems to be far more concentrated on explaining the beast and what it does with this woman. So John, who is living in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, if you told John about a world system that was going to use political power to promote false religion and murder the saints of God, what would that have meant to him? Well, he would have thought of Rome. He would have thought of the way that the emperors at that time in his life demanded worship of themselves and executed any Christians who refused to worship the emperor. And when he sees this vision of a great harlot promoting false religion, 
she is not a religious system that he sees around him, but she sure looks familiar in some ways. And so the angel explains this to John in that context. Yeah, she looks familiar, right? But look at what she's writing. That seven-headed, ten-horned beast is the Antichrist kingdom that's not here yet. And so John's trying to understand this in the context of his life, and the angel's like, no, what you're seeing is something that's not here yet. So look at a couple things the angel points to. In verse 8, the beast which, which was and is not and shall descend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, they that dwell on the earth will wonder, all those whose names are not written in the book of life, when they see this beast which was and is not and yet is. Now, do you remember what we learned about the Antichrist? He's going to rise to power. Back in Revelation 13, John saw he was wounded in his head as if he had died and then appeared to come alive, alive again. And everyone was amazed at this. Right? He has his own kind of misleading death and resurrection story. And I think that's what all of this you know, was and is not and yet is, is all about. It's describing that event. And I know that, that, you know, it sounds like a puzzle here, especially verses 11, 10 and 11, which say there are seven kings, five are fallen, right? Five are passed away in John's time. One is, that is the sixth one, exists in John's time. And the others, the seventh king, is yet to come. And when he comes, he's only going to last a little while. You know, I think that one king in John's time is the Roman Empire. And then the next great world empire is Antichrist's kingdom. He is the seventh king. But look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven and goes into perdition. Right? How can the Antichrist be the eighth and be one of the seven? Which is what verse 11 says. Well, there's that whole died and looks like he rose again thing. The Antichrist is the seventh and eighth king. And when he has his world empire, there's going to be in verse 12, 10 kings who have not received a kingdom as of yet. And so in John's time, they didn't exist. But they're going to briefly serve as sort of client kings of the Antichrist, under rulers for him. Most of the angel's explanation in verses 7 through 15 is focused on the coming Antichrist in order to put this great harlot into context for John. It's something that's still future to him. Now, the angel does say a couple of things about the woman in John's vision, though. In verse 9, she sits on seven mountains. And verse 15 reasserts that she has had worldwide scope of, of people and multitudes and nations and languages, right? This worldwide influence. So, I guess here's where I just have to come out with it. I've tried to understand this in some other way, but I keep coming back to this great harlot seems like Roman Catholicism. Now, my biggest stumbling block to that is that I am certain in the first century when this was written and John's readers first read it, they wouldn't have understood it like that because Roman Catholicism didn't exist 
But what the angel keeps telling John is, look at what she's writing. This is Antichrist kingdom. This is something future, right? Something that, in fact, doesn't exist. And so it is a very short walk from pagan Rome to papal Rome. So let me just kind of describe the parallels here. Roman Catholicism proclaims allegiance and commitment to God, and yet it is a religious system that has strayed far from him into the worst forms of idolatry. Historically, Roman Catholicism is the very picture of mixing political and religious systems together, right? They've held political influence over many nations and used faith as an excuse for all sorts of abuses, Roman Catholicism has this kind of worldwide influence on many waters. There's not a corner of the globe where it hasn't touched. It's also obviously based in Rome. This is the very city that John would have thought of in the description in verse 9 of she's sitting on seven mountains. Rome was famously built on seven hills. I don't think that you could point to one religious system that has used faith as a scheme to accumulate wealth like Roman Catholicism has. Even today, the very image of the clothes and architecture screams wealth, like St. Peter's Cathedral, which is this kind of showcase of Catholicism. It was built primarily through the selling of indulgences, right? You, You pay for this and we'll excuse the sins that you've committed or maybe the one you're planning to commit. Throughout history, Roman Catholicism has been the most murderous organization when it comes to the Lord's saints. True disciples of Jesus have been hunted down, tortured to death, burned at the stake as part of the Pope's inquisitions. Catholicism can truly be described as being drunk with the blood of martyrs. And so if this is indeed Roman Catholicism, it would be difficult to ignore that she's called in verse 5 the mother of harlot daughters, right? Protestant religions came out of Roman Catholicism and many, if not most, still advance an idolatrous worship that does not trust Christ alone for salvation. Now, could I be wrong about this? (laughs) Of course I could. But the parallels are stunning. And in the end, if I am wrong about that specific, that this isn't Roman Catholicism, it does not change the point of this chapter. Maybe this is a different system, a different flavor of false worship. But even so, Roman Catholicism is false worship and all false religious systems are facing destruction. Unless, according to verse 8, your name is written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Unless that's true of you, you are on the wrong side. Because every form of false religion is against Christ. And when, in verse 14, the people of the earth gather to make war and to fight against the Lord, they're going to lose. Verse 14 says they'll make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome him because he is Lord of lords and King of kings and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. They're not following this false religious system. Okay, verses 16 through 18, religious Babylon is destroyed, right? What what happens to this great harlot? 
Well, she's seen in John's vision riding on a beast, right? She's in cahoots with the Antichrist. But it won't last. Those 10 client kings of the Antichrist, the rulers governing under him, they hate her. Look at verses 16 through 18. The 10 horns which you saw upon the beast, they shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the word of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So just like Babylon of old, God is going to use Babylon as a tool for his wrath and then he makes Babylon the object of his wrath. These rulers of Antichrist's kingdom, they're going to hate this great harlot and absolutely destroy her, right? It seems like, well, the Antichrist is going to be more than glad to use religion as a tool to gain power, but once he establishes his rule, there's no room for any kind of worship except of of himself. But look why it turns out the way it does. Verse 17 says, God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Right? The king's heart is in the Lord's hand and he turns it whatever way he desires. So this great harlot, this false religious system, it is going to be judged by God. He is going to use his enemies, this time the political system, as a tool for his wrath. And then in chapter 18, we'll read that that political system labeled Babylon becomes the object of his wrath as it gets destroyed. Now, you might have patiently listened to all of this and thought, I don't reach that same conclusion. I don't see how you got there. I don't think this is Roman Catholicism. Or you might think, well, it's not fair to to label Catholicism, much less all Protestant religions as harlot daughters of Catholicism. And that's okay. I should maybe note, I'm not saying that this is a description of every individual who is trapped in that system. It's not a description of every individual in Catholicism or in any other you know, denomination of faith. It's not. In fact, You can look over at Revelation 18, verse 4, and there is a call from God. Before Babylon is destroyed, there is a call from God. Come out of her, my people. Don't be partakers of her sins so that you don't receive her plagues. So I conclude there are saved folks in Catholicism and lots of Protestant denominations that descend from Catholicism. But I would also say that is in spite of what they teach, not because of what they teach. What I do think that you need to agree with is Revelation 17 is describing some false religious system and every false religious system is doomed for destruction. Because you either make peace with God through faith in Jesus alone and you are one of those called and chosen and faithful in verse 14 or you face the wrath of God as he destroys the religious systems of this world. You either have peace with him through faith in Jesus or you don't have peace with him at all. 